Today's guest on the podcast is Lizzie Velasquez. She's the author of the book, Dare to be Kind. In 2006, Lizzie was dubbed the world's ugliest woman in a video posted on YouTube. Out of this, Lizzie was able to create a platform that speaks out against bullying, but even more so speaks for so much about how we can change our attitude, our outlook, and our purpose by deciding to be kind. Lizzie has a rare genetic condition, but it has shaped her life in so many other ways than just the way she looks. I am thankful for one, for Lizzie, and for coming across her TEDx talk from 2013 called How Do You Define Yourself? If you haven't seen this talk, you should definitely go to YouTube, Google it, check it out. Um, It's a great great 11 minutes to watch with yourself and your kids and even your puppy dogs would probably like it as well. I think my lizard does. But I appreciated Lizzie taking the time to chat with me. And I encourage you all to grab a copy of her book, which is just out in paperback, Dare to be Kind. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day. And it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Lizzie Velasquez. Hi, Lizzie. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. I saw your TEDx video on YouTube um, just recently, and I watched it with my 10-year-old son, and I thought, I have just gotten to speak with her. She is so funny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is a great I'm talk. I'm so happy. Like, I, it's still so crazy to me because I did it at the end of 2013, and now it's 2018, and there's still people who haven't seen it, and I'll still get approached pretty regularly of people who have just seen it and it's just like I don't know it's one of those speeches that really changed everything and it still continues to even years later it's so great I, I noticed that I looked at it again this morning and it has 11 million views <laughs> what does that feel it's like crazy. <laughs> um I mean unreal because every I speak a lot throughout the year and of course it's different times during the year during the summer, I usually don't do as much. And during the school year, it's pretty often. And for the last couple of years in December, I've, I've made a rule of only doing like one or two at the beginning. And then I know that's when I have the rest of the month off and can just relax and unwind. And my TED talk was my last speech of that year. And I had just flown from Boston and spoke there and knew that I was so close to having a break. And I went and I honestly, at the time, I knew what TED events were, but I don't think I really understood the impact of them. I mean, I went in, I was asked to be the closing speaker of the day, which wasn't originally planned. And apparently it's a really big deal in the TED world to be asked to be the closing speaker. Yes. And so I, I'm not really able to go out and sit in audiences at events to hear other people speak because it's usually just me or someone else. And so that day I was able to sit there the entire day from 8 a.m. 
And so I went on in the afternoon and I got to hear everyone speak. And I had, there's a lot of also rules for TED. So you have to submit a lot of things leading up to it. So they know what you're going to say and it's planned out. And that's not really the type of speaker that I am. I usually (laughs) sort of just wing it as crazy as that sounds. And so planning was really hard for me. And so I was in my head a lot throughout that day of, okay, I have to stick to what we talked about, but there was just something deep down telling me, just do what you're, do what you're used to. And so I looked at my producer uh, who I'd been working with and had only met her maybe two times. And right before they called me up, they, she, I told her, do you trust me? And she sort of just looked at me and said, yes, bye. And I said, I'm going to throw out everything we talked about. Just trust me. <gasps> Did and you right really? when I finished saying that, yeah, right when I finished saying that, they called me up on stage. <laughs> and so I went up and, <laughs> and I told myself, I think once I said that, I just felt so much better, oddly enough. And I had no, how you define yourself, I don't know where that came from. That was never something I've talked about before. I've never framed a speech that way before. And so it was just so authentically natural. And I mean, me forgetting what I was talking about was so genuine because I honestly didn't know where I was going with it. And I just started (laughs) talking. And so the fact that there's 11 million views, knowing the background of how it all happened makes it even crazier. Well, and I think that's what makes it so wonderful because it comes off so incredibly authentic and uh, like not unrehearsed as an unpolished, but it came off that you were saying exactly what you needed to say in that moment. Oh, thank you. And I mean, having the girls, they um, had bust in girls from an all girls high school and middle school that day. And so when I, they had the middle school girls sitting in the front in the morning, on like pillows and blankets, like a real comfy area. And then there were the tables behind the girls. And I think having them there to like play off of them and really talk with them made it even more special because I've never had that before. And having them right in front of me and literally seeing in their eyes what I was saying was impacting them made a big difference. That's really cool. So everyone, we're talking about the how do you define yourself TED Talk that Lizzie gave. So go Google it if you haven't seen it. But let's back (laughs) up a little bit and talk about your history and and where you came from and and how you got to this point today. Let's hear the the canned version. I know you've got one by now. (laughs) I do. I do. I have. I'll give you the spark notes version of my life. (laughs) Um, I... I was born in Austin, uh, Texas, Uh, my parents' first child. um, My dad was an elementary school teacher at the time. My mom worked at daycare, uh, completely normal pregnancy for my mom. Um, It wasn't until closer to the end that they realized there was no amniotic fluid around me, so I had to be born immediately. And the doctor said it was a miracle that I was alive. Um, I came out screaming, and all my scores were normal. And so it just made no sense that I weighed two pounds, 10 ounces. My skin was very translucent. You can see like my veins and stuff. But besides that, absolutely everything else was normal. And because of that, the doctors didn't have anything in the books to say, this is what's wrong with her. This is going to be her future. So they were sort of just making it up. (laughs) And because of my size, that's when they told my parents, 
you're really going to have to take care of her the rest of her life. She's not going to be able to do anything. Um, she's not going to talk or crawl or walk or any of that. And my parents just said, we're going to take her home and raise her the best way we know how. And so they took me home and they did just that. My dad continued teaching. My mom um, ended up staying home uh, with me and she didn't want me to spend my days with just me and her. So she started babysitting uh, two other girls my age so that I could grow up from the very beginning around other kids with a sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until kindergarten that I was sort of introduced to the fact that I was different because up until then, everything was so normal and I never experienced that sense of what's wrong with me or I'm different because there was just nothing. I was just worthy and I was small and that was it. (laughs) So that was, you know, when you say you're different, this is a podcast, so we have to like let everyone, you know, no one has a picture. Um, But (laughs) when you say different, you you said you were smaller. I mean, was that it? You were just like a, a mini, mini kid? Yeah, many, many, many. Um, I'm still very tiny. I'm about to be 29 years old, and I weigh maybe like 68 pounds. So very, very thin, very slim, all of that. So just imagine a five-year-old version of that, and there's not much difference. (laughs) Okay, okay. So what was kindergarten like? Um. I now look at it as a big wake-up call for a five-year-old because that really was the first time of me getting that introduction of, hey, you don't look like the other kids. And it was scary. And I think one of the best things that my parents did for me was send me in with no fears or no worries. They never, even though I knew they knew and I knew they were worried that other kids were going to pick on me, they didn't send me in with, a game plan, I guess you could say. And I'm so appreciative for that because I never went in saying like waiting for the moment that someone was going to pick on me and here's what's going to happen and here's what I'm going to do. And, and I mean, uh, for some kids, I guess that could work really well for them. But for me, I guess that's the theme of like my life now, not really having game plans, just (laughs) going with it. (laughs) Um, But I, I went in and I had so much support from teachers and I did have friends in, in, in kindergarten who are, I still talk to to this day, but kids who sort of just took me under their wing and protected me. And there's many times that I'm still finding out, even as an adult, times where other kids were picking on me and I don't remember it at all because they were the ones who went above and beyond. And, and mind you, they're, they're my age, they're five years old kids who would tell other kids don't point at her or that's my friend or don't laugh at her or that's not nice. And so for me, I, I've just been so blessed and so grateful to be able to have number one, a foundation in my parents who, who just started all of this for me, who could have easily just said, you know, she's not going to do anything. Um, So then going to school in kindergarten and having these little warriors next to me, without any of us even realizing it. Well, you talked about in the TED Talk, um, as far as your, I think you called it syndrome, that there's only you Mm -hmm. or maybe one other person in the world that can eat whatever they want and not gain weight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a little different now. I think for throughout my whole life, I've never been officially 
I hadn't been officially diagnosed. And so I was just going off what doctors were saying. And at the time, they were telling me you are one of three. I didn't know who the three were, um, who have whatever this is. And I mean, I went through a life of doctors, Mm -hmm. a life of looking for answers until I was about 13 or 14 when my parents let me decide if I wanted to continue going to see genetic specialists on a regular basis or not. And I took a break for a while because I was doing just fine. I mean, the biggest thing with me is I'm blind in my right eye. I can see pretty good out of the other and I have a really weak immune system. But other than that, things are great. And so I didn't at the time feel like I needed to continue and go and stay at a hospital for a week or two weeks and have every test done knowing what the results were going to be. And it was always everything's normal. So I took a break for a few years. Uh, I was on the Today Show, I think in 2007 or 2008. Uh, It was my first live morning show. And a while after, we got an email from a genetic specialist in Houston. And he said that his wife had saw me on the show and she told him about me and he said he would love to meet with me. And so he seemed nice and I had already taken a break and we ended up going to meet with him. He was so great, so respectful. Um, there are some doctors who will sit me down and just say, so why are you eating? Or what's wrong with you? And just oh, wow. right bat, I just it was a bad taste in my mouth and it's just like, well, I'm not going to talk to you now. And so with him, it was just this instant, okay, I like you. I'm in. I'll do some tests. And of course, there were times where I was annoyed and I hated them and I was <laughs> mad at him for making me stay sequestered for 24 hours in a tiny room to measure the oxygen and the calories. And I hated it. I called it hospital jail. Um, oh my gosh. But after that, uh, things continued normally. We went to see him every other year. Uh, went to graduated high school, went to college, uh, TED Talk happened, started filming my documentary uh, in 2014, right after the following year, right after it went viral, sort of this whole world is a whole new platform kind of thing. Uh, started filming my documentary at the beginning of the year uh, in the summer of 2014, I was asked to go speak in Barcelona. It was my first time to go out of the country. And so I went, we filmed for the documentary. And on our last day there, I went with our director, uh, Sarah Bordeaux and my mom. And on our last day there, we had lunch. They sat across from me and they both looked kind of sad. And I was like, what's happening? And they proceeded to tell me that my genetic doctor from Houston had called them before we left and said that he found my official diagnosis. And when I got back, he wanted me to go to Houston so that I could get an answer at 25 years old. And I had always said, I will never believe that I have a condition until a doctor who I trust is sitting across and looking me in the eyes and saying, this is what you have. Mm -hmm. And so for 25 years, when you don't, just not in, in your mind that so that's going to happen because you just have such a sense of peace and it becomes a part of you that you're just sort of a question mark. And when you get a call that says, I'm going to erase that question mark and you're about to get an exclamation point that might also add a question mark. <laughs> Do you want this? Yes or no? Um, and so I was quiet for a while, sort of just processing it. And they gave me the option because we were filming at the time 
uh, they gave me the option to film the doctor's appointment and explain it to the world the way that I feel comfortable with. Or it was also completely fine if we didn't film it and we didn't include it, but I knew right away I wanted to. And so there is a scene in my documentary where you are with me the moment I finally get a diagnosis, which is crazy. Oh, wow. So what is the name of your documentary? It's called A Brave Heart, The Lizzie Velasquez Story. Okay. And it's available uh, on iTunes and Amazon as well. And I think it's on on demand on some networks. I'm not sure which ones. Um, But... Well, my son will be so excited. He'll be so excited because he loved your talk. He goes, what else can we watch with her? And I said, well, I don't know. And um, I said, but I think (laughs) I'm going to ask her to be on my podcast. And he goes, well, I want to be on the podcast. And I said, well, let's just see. And then I forgot to tell him that you and I were talking. And every night we do this thing where we talk about each other's day and what we're going to do the next day. And I said, well, tomorrow. So I'm talking, remember the girl Lizzie? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, I'm talking to her tomorrow. And he was like, I am so mad at you. <laughs> he's oh like, my I want to talk to Lizzie. James. What's his name? James. Hi, James. It's Lizzie. <laughs> I just want to tell you that you have a great mom and it's nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> He'll love it. He'll love it. But he thought you were so cool because he, he was like, he was very concerned about that you couldn't see out of your right eye. Like that was his main concern. Yeah. And he wanted to know a lot about that. So. <laughs> um, well, it's definitely, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I pictures when I was really young, both of my eyes look exactly the same. Uh-huh. And so we don't, I think it was around the time where I was four years old that I, the cloudiness started over um, my blind eye and I have zero memory of what it's like to see out of two eyes. The concept of seeing out of two eyes blows my mind. I just don't understand it. I feel like you <laughs> see way too much. Like it's just, I don't know. It's crazy to me. I think you might be right. It is a lot. It's a lot to <laughs> I, see, a lot to take in. I've had many conversations with my friends of like, I just don't understand. And we get so frustrated with each other because I just can't <laughs> comprehend what it's like. But I'm just so used to, I mean, living my life with only vision on one side. I mean, when I was in school, you know, when you like sit in a row and people pass papers from like behind you forward, yeah. I would always have to like sort of turn my head to the right. And also to the left so that I can see which side it was coming from or tell the person behind me, like, hey, pass it on this side, because if you're passing it on my right side, I'm not going to see you at all. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about mindset for you. I I have a feeling that mindset is almost everything to you and and important as far as how you frame your day and your life and, and your mission. So what does having a good mindset mean to you? Uh, You're right. Absolutely everything. But I think it's changed as I've gotten older. I mean, my, my life from the get go was very different and growing up was very different. But at the same time, I dealt with the same issues that every teenager dealt with wanting to be accepted, hating your hair, hating your clothes, wanting to join teams. And I wanted all of those things. And so I had the struggle of wanting all of that plus not being able to 
do things to change the way that I looked. I was stuck in this body. And so I feel like my mindset has gone through a roller coaster of emotions. I mean, there are some periods of time where my mindset was so dark and so cloudy. And no matter what anybody told me, I didn't believe them. I don't want to believe them. You can tell me I'm, I'm, I'm beautiful and I can do all these things. And it, it was in one ear and out the other. And once I got older, I started realizing that there's so many people who can help me and who are there for me, but I'm never going to be able to sort of soak in the lessons that they're giving me unless I open that door myself and I'm standing there and I'm saying, okay, I'm here, I'm present, I want to take this in, I want to learn it. And opening that door was really hard. I mean, I was so used to saying no to everything. I was so used to saying, I'm not this, I wish I was that, why can't I do that? And changing your mindset to erase, number one, the biggest thing that I had to get rid of was comparison and having social media and looking at friends. And it was so easy to say, I want that. Why don't I have that? And so telling myself that, no, the second I catch myself doubting or comparing, I'm going to remind myself about one thing that I like about myself. And over time, it became habit. And now that's still sort of my plan of action with my mindset of knowing, you know, there are going to be struggles and I'm going to actively remind myself of these things. But at the same time, I also have a profession of inspiring people with positivity. And I think for a little while after Ted went viral, I, I let it take over and I let it get to be. And I started putting the weight of the world on my shoulders and telling myself, I can only be positive. I can only be happy. And that quickly led to a downfall of, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And so I had a period of time after that of how can I, number one, take care of myself. Number two, live up to this new platform that was very unexpectedly given to me. And number three, how can I find a balance of both? And (laughs) I think that's sort of where I am now of thinking I'm human, number one. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to share whatever I possibly can to whoever will listen to me. And if there are days where I wake up and I'm sad and I'm frustrated, I'm not going to hide it from the world. And I'm not, especially not going to hide it from myself. And I'm going to acknowledge it and process it and allow myself to have those emotions. And once they're out of my system, Tomorrow's a new day, and I'll just keep going after that. People are so appreciative to see someone in the public eye or on social media share their feelings about, hey, today's not so great. I mean, not constant complaining because everyone, you know, nobody likes the constant yeah. complainer <laughs> on your feed, yeah. you know, the ones you have to constantly unfollow. But, you know, <laughs> when you are out there, giving a positive message and I do it too, but I'm on a much smaller scale than you do. But I know that sometimes when I have those days and I, and then I'm express my frustration or my humanness, those posts go a lot, a long way with people. Cause they think, yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. You feel this way sometimes too. <laughs> Isn't that so surprising and shocking? The first time that happened to me, the reaction was overwhelming. And I was like, I went from like, feeling sorry for myself to then wanting to just thank everyone and be like, we're in this together. You get it. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> Together we can do it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be okay, guys. <laughs> do you remember the moment when you decided to share your story, to, to just step out? Because I know in your talk you mentioned you you set the goal to become a motivational speaker and an author, but there had to be a moment where you said, I've got something to share and here I go. Do you remember when that was or was it kind of a more slow, organic process for you? Um, I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that I, I mean, well, I don't think, I do know. <laughs> I was asked to do my first speech ever when I was in high school. I can't remember if I talked about that uh, in my TED Talk or not. No, um, I don't think you did. But I, I was a sophomore, no, a junior or senior. I can't remember the exact age. Uh, but my assistant principal had... I had a really close relationship with her and she was a really great mentor to me and I was her office aide. And so there was lots of times where I was really able to be open with her about the things I've experienced in my life. And in my mind, I was just talking to her about, you know, what's been going on. And she had asked me one day if I could tell my story uh, to 200 ninth graders at my school. And I was like, why in the world would I do that? <laughs> no, are you crazy? They're not going to listen to me. Like, these are my peers. And I told her, well, what do you want me to talk about? And she said, your life. And I was like, well, what about my life? Like, I have nothing to tell. And so she talked about me. I mean, she talked to me more and, and said, you know, she really wants me to be able to just tell them what I've gone through and how I've been able to overcome it. And that was really my first time of processing that. And sort of stepping back and saying, well, I have overcome some things and I am proud of this. And so I talked to my family and my friends and they encouraged me to do it. Um, my friends were front row. They even made posters. <laughs> and they even had like the old school like video camera with yes. the flip out. And there's, I, I wish I could find it. It's like on a VHS somewhere um, of them, of one of my friends looking at me and saying, are you nervous? And I look so scared but I was <laughs> petrified and I'm like yeah kind of but I could see it in my face like I was freaking out um but I ended up writing out my speech uh word for word and I printed it and put it in a folder with brags like a script and I went up on stage and there's a little table and a chair and I sat down and I read my speech like I held the microphone and I looked down and they had warned me and said, if they get loud, there's teachers around, you know, they'll calm them down. It was so quiet from the second I started talking to the second I was done. You could hear like a pin drop. Wow. And halfway through, I mean, I had been looking down, reading halfway through the speech. And it was so quiet that I looked up. So I'm like, why is it like, what is, <laughs> is everyone on? still here? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so when I looked up, of course, they were all still there and they were all, I mean, I could see tears in some of their eyes. And so I put the folder down and I just started talking to them. And when I was done, I had this sense of, yep, my purpose just found me and wow. my calling just found me and I need to do whatever I can to continue to make this happen. And so that's all I knew. I mean, I was in high school. I went home that day. I had no idea how to be a speaker and I Googled it and made a website and years later, I had no idea that I would be where I am today, looking back on that day when I sort of first started. Uh, and so ever since then, it was like, okay, I need to share my story. 
how am I going to? I have no idea. And everything sort of just fell into place. That's amazing. One thing that you are definitely an expert at, expert at is turning people's negativity into a fire that leads to your success. And I know this is a big part of your talk and, and your mission is, is kind of changing that mindset to allow the, the hatred of other people or the jealousy or whatever to turn that into something good. And I agree with you. But the question I have is how, 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 how do you actually do that? Oh, man, it's not easy. I'll be the first to tell you. It's not easy. <laughs> I may make it seem like it's easy, but it's not. Again, I mean, I'm a really, really big believer that you are your own biggest influence in your life. And you can have so many role models and it's so great. But unless you are the one that makes that decision of, I'm going to actively work to change my mindset and my attitude and my life. Nothing is going to change. And so we don't really think about that. I think a lot of times we're just like, okay, where can I find that inspirational quote? Or where can I watch something that's going to make me feel all the feels? And, and, and in the back of your mind, that's what you're thinking is going to change your attitude. But it's not. It's definitely an ingredient in that recipe, but it's not where I believe and what I have seen has worked starts. And for me, you'll, I like to remind people of that. I like to be the one to say, hey, here's what's going on. I know it's hard. I know you're so negative right now. But unless you tell yourself that you're going to commit to this change, nothing is going to help. And so I've, I've seen that some people take to that really quickly. Some definitely don't. And it takes a little bit more conversation which is totally fine. But I think that's what, I, what I've done mostly, and, and it seems to work so far. Do you have um, sort of a pivotal moment in your life that really made you game up and put those words into action like 10 times more than you ever had before? Absolutely. And it's the whole reason, I think, why I wrote Dare to be Kind. Um, and it all happened right after my, um, we, I did my TED Talk in December of 2013. Two weeks later, it went viral. And so the break that I normally take didn't happen at all because it was just a whole new level. And so by the time January rolled around, it was like, what do I do now? I mean, I had just, it was my first year after graduating college and in that weird headspace of what is, what am I going to do? And so the documentary happened, and so that really actually started in February of 2014. So from February until the end of September in 2014, I was on the go every single day. I was either doing press to promote, to help raise funds for the movie. I was traveling and still doing my regular speaking schedule. I was filming. It was just every single day was planned. I knew who I was going to be with. I knew what I was going to be talking about. I was stopped having a social life because I was working all the time. And so my friends stopped inviting me places because they knew I was going to be gone. My family and my friends continue with their lives. And once filming stopped and it was time to start editing the documentary, everything stopped. And when you go from such like a high, high to then the next morning you wake up and it's, you have nothing to do. It's nice for two weeks when I caught up on sleep, but after that, I sort of went down 
a really, really, really dark hole. I got my first apartment on my own without a roommate or anything. Uh, I can't drive because of my vision. Uber wasn't around. Everyone was still living their lives. And so I was sort of just stuck at home and the uninvited guests of my inner thoughts started coming over. And at the time when I got the diagnosis, I had never processed it ever. It was just like, okay, here's your answer, what you have. That's it. Okay. Thanks doctor. See you later. Bye. Got to go to the next thing. And so it was months and months of not, of it just being like, okay, swept under the rug, whatever. And so once I was done with everything, I started really processing my diagnosis. Um, I was diagnosed with neonatal prodroid syndrome. Uh, it's made up of two different things, but mostly it affects my eyes, my bones, and my heart. And so I'm now at a risk of my aortic valve dilating so much so that it could sort of, as crazy and disgusting as it sounds, make my heart explode. Um, I now have an incredible team of doctors, and we now have routines of every six months keeping an eye on everything. And so everything is good right now, thank God. Um, I'm glad we know that now that we have a game plan in place. Uh, But again, when you find out something like that and you just say, okay, thanks, and you leave it alone, it's eventually going to come to the surface again. And that's what happened. Um, I had anxiety medication uh, from a really bad flying experience that I had. And I started saying, well, I'm just going to take one and go to sleep so I don't have to think about anything. One turned into two, two turned into two and a glass of wine. That turned into me not remembering days. And it was just really, really bad. And for the first time in my life, I started thinking, if something bad is going to happen to me and I know it's going to happen to me, why don't I speed up this process so I can spare my family the pain of waiting? Oh, my goodness. Which (laughs) is so not me. It's not me. It's not what I've ever experienced in my life. And I think that was the scariest part of it was I've never dealt with this before. And, you know, once, once people started finding out slowly, of course, only my inner circle knew about it. My work team knew about it. And after that, the guilt set in of what in the world was I doing? A a movie is literally, literally being made about my life and I don't want to be here. And so it was this process of, I feel so guilty now. How could I put everyone through that? And once, once I started thinking clear again, because it had been so long where I didn't feel any emotions whatsoever. Once I started feeling them, let me tell you, they hurt, but also the first thought that came to my mind one morning was I'm now going to be able to reach an audience that I have never been able to personally connect with before. I've never been able to personally relate to anyone who said I have had suicidal thoughts or I have not wanted to be here before. I've never had that experience. And now that I, I did, I went from feeling so guilty to oddly feeling so extremely grateful and feeling so ready again, I think my fire was lit again to go back and say, you guys, I went through this and it was horrible, but here's what I've learned. And so that was sort of the moment where it was like, okay, this is, this is my next chapter. No pun intended of (laughs) what I'm going to do. And that beautifully came out in the book. Well, I can't wait to read it. Um, and that's so interesting. I I am alcohol free now for over two two years and three months, I guess. But um, 
excuse me, I spent, you know, so many decades just suffering with this alcohol issue that no one knew about, or my mom knew about it and one of she reminded me. Um, but, you know, I went through it, overcame it. And then now that I'm on the other side of it, I'm like, I, while I lost a lot of time and I lost a lot of money and, and things like that, I'm right. so grateful I went through it because now, you know, the same thing I can, I, I can understand where addiction comes from and, and the pain and, and, you know, I never meet a, a stranger in the sobriety realm. It's just, I'm glad I went through it. So I know what you mean. It's not the coolest thing to go through, but on the other side, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so on let's... the other side, it's incredible. I mean, looking back now, like I remember having like the year mark of when it was happening and the thought of thinking last year I was in such a dark place and where I am now, I was just so, so proud. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let, I know you've got to go soon. So let's talk about your book real quick. Um, so it's available yeah. everywhere, right? All the available channels. Yeah. But So yeah. it's, it's called Dare to Be Kind. And it yeah. give us a little bit more about what it's about. So Dare to Be Kind is technically my fourth book, but it feels like my very first book. Um, this book, I think I was finally in a headspace where I can truly and authentically be completely and totally vulnerable way more than I ever have in my YouTube channel or Instagram or my speeches. And this was a way for me to be able to say, I have experienced a lot of things in my short time on earth here. And a lot of it has been not so nice, but there is a light on the other side of that. There is a way to be kind and a lot of it shares my personal stories of how I've had to learn that there are times where the easiest route is to be mean. And especially if you look at the world we live in today, everyone is fighting 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And I hope that this book is a reminder through my personal stories that there's a way when you're in a situation that feels horrible and you just want to defend yourself and yell and curse and do all of these things. There's a way to press pause, look at the bigger situation and find a way choose to be kind and not feel like you need to attack someone to get your point across. It's so important that we just press pause and look at the bigger picture and then go from there versus our first instinct of attacking. And so this book is my way of sharing that and explaining it. Um, also keeping true to my humor and the funny stories that have happened <laughs> over the last couple of years and the crazy things that have happened and, um, ending the book with um, with my breakdown and how I overcame that, uh, I think, rounds it out pretty much. <laughs> well, one more question for you. This podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and it was born from the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do with those 24 hours that makes us happy, healthy, successful. So what is something that you do on a daily basis that makes your life great? First of all, I love that so much. This is the most creative question ever. Um, I <laughs> and long think, and lengthy. <laughs> I yeah. I mean, I I I have sort of this three. I dropped my phone. Sorry, it's okay. Uh, okay, can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Um, I I have I have this the three things that sort of keep me going on a daily basis. And it's my faith, my family, and my friends. And 
every day I know that I have to make contact with at least one of those three things. And in order for me to keep me going and to keep my day, no matter how it's going, I have to either say a prayer, I have to talk to a friend or family member, and looking at pictures at my dog and staring at them whenever I'm away from them is just like the cherry on top of things. <laughs> and I think that's just like my my thing. Keeping those things in, in my life is what keeps me going every single day. I love that. And I just adore you and thank you for your light in this world. And I look forward to reading your book and, and telling my son what a great kid you are. <laughs> Well, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. All right. We'll talk soon, Lizzie. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. 